I don't want to be curled up in the fetal position on the couch in two years still saying, I've got this catastrophic excuse for not living my life because my husband was murdered. So who would blame me? And I, I didn't like that. I didn't like the thought that you could slip into that. That's Katie Hutchinson, the author of Walking After Midnight, one woman's journey through murder, justice, and forgiveness, and the subject of this podcast from Raincoast Books. Hi, I'm Robert Wiemat, and I'll talk with Katie about her journey in just a minute. But first, the tragic events that changed her life completely. A life that Katie describes as perfect, living in Squamish, a small town near Vancouver, with her husband Bob, a well-known lawyer and athlete, and the father of their twins, who were then just two weeks away from their fifth birthday. And our lives were literally blown apart on New Year's Eve in 1997. We were settled into a quiet dinner party with friends when we were made aware of the fact that a house party was taking place down at the end of our street at the home of a vacationing friend. So we asked the two gentlemen that were having dinner with us to accompany him as they walked down the end of our street to make sure that everything was under control. Bob never came home. When they got to the house, the three men got separated and Bob did what I can just imagine him doing. He went straight to the master bedroom to check on our friend's personal space. And when Bob got to the master bedroom, he was punched in the head by a young man who was not happy that he had come to break up the party. Immediately after Bob fell to the ground unconscious, another young man came up to Bob and delivered what he many years later described as four soccer-type kicks to Bob's head. Bob died on our friend's bedroom floor of a massive brain hemorrhage. Immediately after Bob's death, the town sunk into a code of silence. Nobody that was at that party would give the police any information about what had happened. Eventually, the police went undercover. I left town, rebuilt my life. Five years after Bob was killed, I finally got the phone call I'd been waiting for. The police were ready to make an arrest. They were about to arrest a young man by the name of Ryan Aldridge. And I was amazed that my immediate reaction when I heard his name was not that I was angry. I was relieved that finally somebody had been arrested. But I was also overcome with just how devastating the experience had been, how frightening the experience had been, but how there was a complete absence of the emotion of anger. I phoned the police and I explained to them that I wanted to be there when they arrested Ryan. I wanted to meet him. And that meeting was the start of Katie's extraordinary venture into what she now knows as restorative justice, a subject she speaks about regularly now in schools, juvenile facilities, correctional institutes, and at community organizations around the country. I met with Katie Hutchinson at an outdoor cafe near her home in Victoria. Before all of this happened, mm -hmm. what was your sense of the justice system? Is it something you even thought about? or? I did think about it because Bob would come home and he would talk about cases he was working on and he would talk about process and he was also fascinated by uh, the personalities of both the lawyers on the other side of something and also his clients and to the extent that it was appropriate to talk about sort of the people aspect of it. I always got a sense that the whole experience was very process heavy and I always felt as though there was so much more that could be done for the people and that everything took so long and was so drawn out and that people were re-victimized even if it was a civil matter. It was just, it was painful. But it's not something that you studied, it wasn't no. something that you were involved in actively no. then. It was just an observation and because it was the way Bob made his living and I had other lawyer friends. Uh, I was just always conscious of, of how much time was spent making the process happen rather than the players 
Yeah, I found it astounding that you found this route without having a background in it, without any studying of it, without any real first-hand experience other than the way you needed to sort out for yourself. I think that's my personality. And I say that because when I went through um, fertility treatment, um, quite often when I would be in a clinic or, or dealing with some aspect of it and I would meet somebody new, they would say, are you a nurse or are you in the medical profession? Just because I tend to grab onto something and, and information is, is everything and I would learn about it and I guess begin to speak somewhat intelligently about it. I don't know, maybe a little bit of knowledge is a bad thing, but I always felt that the more I knew, you know, when my dad had cancer, when I was going through uh, fertility stuff, it was just better to know expecting twins, become an expert on expecting twins. And and then you are a little, as, as much in the driver's seat as you can be, and that was really the feeling when Bob died, was that I had to be in the driver's seat. It wasn't really a conscious path you chose, right? It was no. uh, partly survival, partly coping, partly... Big survival, big, uh, gotta put breakfast on the table tomorrow, so how best can I do that? Um, easier to do it if the sort of visceral emotion part has been dealt with privately, you know, in my room before I appear. I kind of would get that out of the way and then it was okay. What are we gonna do? And the kids would, there was this, you know, this natural pull to get me through that stuff. And not, not leave it out, but just get through it and experience it so that I could be back for them. Do you remember the first time you started to hear people talking about restorative justice in formal terms uh, when you'd already sort of been practicing it? Yes, I, I absolutely. I remember opening up the newspaper and reading an article uh, that was, was about restorative justice. And I, oh, interesting. There's a name to it. And ironically, it was a series of articles on crime and consequence that I had actually been quoted in. They were discussing the, the natural route I'd taken. And I thought, you know, I, that sort of information thing, I better be up on this. If, if people are going to start linking me to this sort of school of thought, I better know what it's all about. So Katie went to the internet, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, actually, no, Katie picked up the phone. That, the, the other thing I do, and this is probably what I did pre-internet, was I pick up the phone a lot and I call people out of the blue and pick their brains. I did that with um, a, a number of people over the years. And I did, I picked up the phone and I called Dave and Sandy Gustafson, or Dave Gustafson, excuse me, and Sandy Bergen from Community Justice Initiatives and said, you know, I hear this is what you do. Me too, but <laughs> I don't have a master's in, uh, you know, counseling and, and I'm not a, a justice person. I just know that this was right for me and I'd like to find out why you, through years of study and practice, also believe it's right. I was in a room with Howard Zare, who is, I think he hates being called the grandfather of something, but he is the grandfather of restorative justice and all these eminent researchers and practitioners and I just sort of stood up and said, I'm a mom with a story. and. Here we go. I haven't done too badly for a mom with a story. No, it, it's kind of a fun position to be in, actually. I, qu I quite like um, the opportunity. One of the things that it allows me to do is listen a lot. You know, I can tell my story, and that sort of takes an hour, and then I can sit back and, and start soaking in all the, the real stuff. Um, I'm doing it again at a conference in Pennsylvania, ironically, and uh, it's just it's wonderful to see where restorative justice goes beyond you know my experience in a with a violent crime, but also in education and deferral of youth matters, conflict resolution in the workplace. It's just it, it works because it's based on relationship, right? Was it hard to write the book? Mm -mm. No, the book was. Um, 
people say, was it healing? It was like cleaning out the hard drive on your computer. I had all this stuff that I'd been thinking about and, and talking about in, in the presenting end of my work for years, and this allowed me to um, enjoy watching words come on the paper and, and describe them. And I'm a pretty concrete, sequential thinker, so once I made a good outline and told my family that I was going to write a thousand words a day every day. And you did, I bet. I did. <laughs> there was one day where, you know, on a Monday I didn't write, so Tuesday I wrote 2,000 words, and that was okay. I got through that part. But then there was this week where I didn't write all week for a variety of reasons. And so Saturday I put a chili in the crock pot and said to everybody, um, I'll be seeing you at dinner time. And I closed the door to the office. The dog hopped up on her chair, and, and I wrote 5,000 words. What, and it's not that much. It's just you want to write 5,000 good words. And after that, I vowed that I, I wouldn't have another week where I did that again. And I didn't. So it did come out pretty. You would be impossible to go camping with, I bet. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm impossible to do a lot of things with. I leave, when I, when I go away um, to speak, I leave my family with a list that's um, pretty thorough. <laughs> yeah, they all know where they are every moment of the day and what they'll be eating when they're there. But it sort of it, it also speaks to how you handled all of this. Exactly. And that is how I handle it, because I like to, to be able to control it to the extent that it's able to be controlled, but also I leave this little little door open for, for new information. And in every, in every tough situation I've been through in my life, um, you know, losing my father, trying to manufacture a set of twins, losing Bob, for as much as I've had to suffer through something, I've also garnered all kinds of great new information that's applicable in, in, in later life situations. Um, it's just, it's being on top of it and, and, and being okay. I mean, when you wake up after something horrible has happened to you and you sort of wiggle your fingers and your toes and you think, okay, Bob's not here, but I am. So who am I here? And I, I didn't want to be Bob and Katie minus Bob. I really didn't. I just, I wanted to be Katie. And part of that was rediscovering old me and there was a real sense, I think, for people that their own day-to-day -day minor stuff paled by comparison to this friend whose husband had been murdered, so what a great place to throw all their energy. And then I became the sort of clearinghouse and recipient of all their stuff and their own grieving process, which is way different than mine. And that's when I had to sort of put up some boundaries and say, ooh, I need some space around this and, and you need to do your trip and I need to do my trip and, and hopefully at the end of it there'll be a place where we can we can reconnect and in most cases there was and in some cases there weren't and that's life. I get that now. Life is kind of messy huh? It is messy and I'm a person who usually likes to have things tied up in a neat little package and I realized after this one there is some stuff that will never get cleaned up here but for me the, the really big uh, picture stuff like tidying up with Ryan, uh, we did that, and that's huge. You had a sense of where you needed to get to. Oh yeah, right at the start. I just, I knew that that was not, that was a fearful thing to have a person out there that had, had caused such harm to my family and for them to still be out there hurting, maybe potentially dangerous, somebody my children would fear. That was, I honed right in on clearing up that bit before I worried about any of the um, carnage of the closer relationships because when they are an unknown, when they are this sort of monster in space, 
you can't imagine what it would be like to encounter them. But when you have a controlled environment where you say, I want to meet you, and it's safe because that the whole thing around restorative justice is that the facilitators work very hard to make sure that it's obviously physically safe, but also emotionally safe before you start a dialogue. And then that person walks in the room and you look at them and they look like your brother or like your nephew or like a friend, the boy next door. That narrows that chasm between the person that caused the harm and the person that was the recipient of the harm pretty darn fast. And that's where the humanity piece comes in. And you start to say, okay, if you could have done that to me, what's happened to you? And, and to ask that question of them and to let them speak of that sheds a lot of light on why they reach out and hurt rather than reach out and help. I mean, in some ways, you had to lead that, you, you had to lead Ryan to that opportunity to, to, to share that information with you, right? I had to make it okay for him to, to accept it. And, and I mean, it was hard for him. He, he was ready for somebody to come in and start to yell and scream at him and, and berate him and, you know, howl. And it wasn't like that at all. It was very rational. Uh, it was emotional, but it was controlled and it was respectful and it gave a lot of quiet space for him to think and him to articulate. And he was so good at that. Uh, he, he was so thankful. So was I. It just... Um, it brought it down to its very base place and, and he, I don't know if he thought through why it had all happened and, and when I challenged him to think about that and, and later to write about it and then to speak about it, uh, he's just, you know, moved right on and, and he's as okay, I think, as anybody could be after doing that and he gets a life and I want him to have a life. I mean, how cool is that, that he can have a life and he can look at his children and think, wow, like I went to hell and back and, and I'm here and I'm okay and, and I've learned um, how to express loving and caring and nurturing qualities. I guess a lot of people though don't expect you to be the person worrying about that. Right, <laughs> but that's, that's my fundamental belief, is, is everybody expects it to be somebody else. Well, uh -huh. why not you? And there's this really cool power in rolling up your sleeves and cleaning up after crap when you do it alongside the person that caused it to begin with. And you, you, know, you look at that person and you think, I can't believe we're standing shoulder to shoulder, but we are. And if you look at the big picture in this world and think about how much could be accomplished if people that are thought of as uh, enemies get together and do the work, I think we'd see a very different landscape. I often wonder if um, one of the problems that we have is that we create these, you know, jails and institutions and, and places that we push them away from public view to the extent that none of us actually have a clue what's going on there. We don't. And that's, I've had the um, fortunate or unfortunate opportunity to step inside a jail and see what, what it feels like. And that's what it is. It's the, it's the base emotion of fear from the parking lot through the doors to just looking in people's eyes, worrying, for me it was worrying that it was going to be flat affect everywhere I looked. People in survival mode and, you know, Ryan's description of being in jail and what it was like, that's not going to create somebody that is going to come out and be your neighbor and, and behave in a caring, humane way. There's got to be a lot of work that happens within that institution 
to create a whole better healthy person, not just warehousing them. Because I understand the people who say, you know, I, I want to put everybody away and I want to punish them. Like, I do understand that, yeah, yeah. right? But you can do both, <laughs> right? You, t you, take them, you take them off, you take them out of the community to, to create safety in the community, and then you put them somewhere where they don't have to worry about the day-to-day. -day. They don't have to put food on a table. They don't have to pay rent. They're, you know, clothes, everything's supplied for them. So while that's happening, they can do the work. That's the important piece, though. They can do the work. So we need a system that's set up to make sure that all that rehab stuff is in place, but also, if it's appropriate, that they can have a connection with the person to whom they caused harm. And that's, that's just got to be, you know, the added, the added bit that's not in there. And in many cases, it's not going to work. People are going to want to do it, and both parties have to. But when they do, if they do, and you get a result like you did with Ryan and I, or with one of the many, many other cases that have been handled that way in Canada, it's better because then we go out and we speak about justice in a positive way and it has this wonderful trickle-down effect. But just putting people away doesn't solve the problem. You're just going to end up building bigger and bigger jails. It's expensive. It's it, it, just for every reason. It's not, it's not right. It's not the way things work. How are you finding the kind of celebrity attached to you now? <sighs> are you that woman? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm that woman. It's interesting. Um, there are times where, yeah, I'd like to throw on a hat and a pair of glasses and just kind of go grocery shopping. But at the same time, I, I like what I stand for. And the book has, I think, deepened that for the people that were sitting on the fence. With kids, it's fabulous because if they've heard me speak or if they've heard about me speaking, they're totally on side. And there's just such broad support and excitement about the work that I do. And, and I will, I'll be you know, out with my kids and I'll run into a group of teens downtown and they'll, they'll immediately start talking and they're really excited about what I do. And yeah, they, they remember the, the presentation. Adults uh, pre-book were still kind of shaking their heads at me. But the feedback I'm getting from people who are reading the book and talking about the book is, okay, now it makes way more sense, which is why I wrote it to begin with, because there's so much that happened in those nine years that challenged everything we believe to be true or all the social conventions we follow, that it needed, adults need more time to take it in. They've got their own baggage, they've got their own personal stories and biases to, to true up as they're reading what I have to say, but once they've done that, it's, it's more supportive and it's, it's better now than it was pre-book. Has the presentation changed over, I mean, I know that Ryan's doing presentations with you, but has, has your delivery and your present, like the... The core? Yeah. No, and it came, it was put together in a real stream of consciousness kind of way, and I've fine-tuned it a little bit, and I've, picked and, and choose through some of the stories that I initially told that, that don't add to the core message a little bit, but by and large, no, it's the same presentation I did in front of 30 kids in 2003. And the, the timing and the way that, the, the way that Bob is introduced is, is so key because the kids build relationship with him and then when he's gone, they're missing him and they want to know what happened. So that, that has stayed the same, and even the way Ryan has worked into it has only got better and better as he's more comfortable, doesn't use notes, sort of paces around and 
and he is getting very good at reading the audience and seeing what is it that these kids, what sets them apart from the school we did last week and, and where, where are their buttons going to be and he's getting that really well and the same with, with adult audiences too. I, I remember when I was first presenting, I was thinking, I can't do this. I've got no qualifications to be talking to kids about social responsibility. I'm not a teacher. I'm not a psychologist. And then I went to hear Bruce Campana speak. He's an emergency room doctor. And he, all he does is talk about his job. This is what I do with some fairly graphic video to support what he does. And of course, the whole idea is kids in watching the devastating things that he has to deal with on a Friday night, mopping up after motor vehicle crashes and, and other drug and alcohol related carnage, they are supposed to arrive at the conclusion that this behavior is, is um, dangerous. And I realized when I watched Bruce that I don't, I don't need to go out and get a bunch of statistics and pull out a pointer to talk to kids. All I need to do is tell them my story and that quite possibly could be enough. And it is. It absolutely is enough. So I have steered uh, certainly away from trying to preach at kids. And they, they do. They say to me afterwards, you didn't tell us not to do anything, you know, but at the same time you're thinking, I, I can see why I wouldn't want to be doing that. So it is, it is effective. Uh, movie deals? Yeah. Uh, yep. <laughs> yeah, I actually, um, interestingly, that, that happened way before the book and I, I gave the rights to a writer. Uh, which is not traditional, but I met a Victoria guy who I really liked, who had been a lawyer and then decided he didn't want to be a lawyer anymore. There was some charm to that. And uh, had gone to the same high school as me. And I just thought, I don't really feel one way or another if the story ever gets told that way, but if it does, I would want this person to tell it because I know that he would tell it respectfully and that he gets what's important to me. So he's working on some stuff. He's actually got a script written. Yeah, I can't quite imagine what, what we've left uncovered. Do you get to choose who plays you? Oh, we've, there's been some discussion in my house about that. Apparently, according to my husband, um, Catherine Zeta-Jones will be playing me and he'll be playing himself. <laughs> Lucky him. Lucky him. <laughs> uh, I don't know, you have to play yourself, I yeah, think. Yeah, exactly. Well, don't even suggest that because you know I'd do it, right? Yeah. <laughs> And after meeting Katie Hutchinson, I have no doubt she would, given the chance. She will be featured in an hour-long documentary that airs on CBC Television in Canada on November 23rd. Her book is called Walking After Midnight, One Woman's Journey Through Murder, Justice and Forgiveness. You can buy it online at chaptersindigo.ca or at amazon.ca, or just visit the Raincoast Books website for more information. That's at www.raincoast.com. And for Raincoast Books, I'm Robert Wiemet. Thanks for listening.